never stop multi-threading. Never stop multi-threading. Even when this thing is wrapped up and you're just about to get to signatures, especially in large enterprises, there's always somebody else who's a part of it who you haven't met and you don't know where they stand on the issue. You have no visibility and no control and, and, and things are just going to happen and you're not even going to know it. Behind the scenes, it was a small group of people that were doing everything. Slow is smooth and smooth is fast. I want to know how this insane growth actually happened. What are you doing when no one's around, no one's looking? Are you just showing up and doing the minimum? Or are you approaching it like a pro? Be a student of the game. Welcome, my friends, to the GTM podcast. It's a good day to be a day. Uh, we're recording this on a Monday after a beautiful sunny weekend up in the Pacific Northwest. So feeling good. Um, and this conversation feels super topical. Um, everyone I'm talking to, a lot of our founders, uh, a lot of revenue leaders, a lot of our LPs, feels like every tech company is trying to sell uh, either one outside of the tech sector, because uh, that seems to be drying up. And then two, they're trying to increase their ACV. They're trying to figure out how to sell to large enterprise. And it's been top of mind for many, many years. But now in this down market, it feels like it has become a matter of survival, not just, hey, we should figure that out. It's we need to figure it out. And my next guest, in my eyes, knows how to sell to the enterprise better than 99.9999% of all sales leaders on planet Earth. I'm lucky to call him a friend. And this is actually the second podcast we've recorded together. Uh, we did one back in the day on the Sales Engagement Podcast way, way back. Uh, and it's been amazing to see his journey since then. Uh, I am joined by my good friend, Jamal Reimer, co-founder of Outboundless and founder of the Enterprise Sales Community. Jamal, welcome to the pod. How are you doing, man? I'm doing well, Scott. I've been waiting for this. Thanks for having me. Excited to have you. And every time we we talk, I leave with a page full of notes. Um, and just for those listeners who maybe haven't heard of Jamal before, over the past 20 years, Jamal has closed multiple $50 million deals as an individual contributor. So I'll pause there, $50 million deals. Um, as an IC, very much in the arena, actually making it happen. And you know, it turned a lot of those stories and learnings uh, into a best-selling book. It's called Mega Deal Secrets. I highly recommend it for anyone who is trying to figure out how to up-level and get those huge once-in-a-lifetime deals across the line. Uh, he then took that, and now he coaches hundreds of ambitious sellers uh, to sell the largest deals of their career and figure out how to do that uh, repeatedly. Uh, and now also founded the Enterprise Sellers Community, which is a community of practice and knowledge sharing for ICs. And now, I believe, Jamal, you said uh, you're letting some leaders in now as well, too, correct? That's right. We have a, we have a new group that's just for sales leaders within the community. Very cool. Very cool. Um, all right. Well, there is so many areas I could take this conversation, but before we dive into story time, uh, I want to just 
get your thoughts on how SaaS companies start to move upstream to sell to larger enterprises. What is step one? How do I think about it? Maybe I'm a series A founder. You know, we've largely sold to tech companies and maybe there's a little bit of market pull from some enterprise logos. How do we start thinking about it? It's a great question. It's kind of like the difference between you're used to shopping in like a strip mall and all of a sudden you're in a really big mall. There's just more, there's, you know, more shops to visit. There are more people to talk to, but a lot of the same motions happen. And it, it, it's, it's just kind of like, in other ways, it's very different. I think step one in going from wherever you are as a, as, as a, you know, if you're founder selling or if you're doing, you know, inside sales, or if you're doing kind of the high velocity model, which is yielding predictable revenue, but small deals, short uh, sales cycles. I think the biggest jump is um, the, the expanse that you have to cross within one account and you know the number of players and the additional layers of things like politics. Now, you, you're, you're going to run into some political structure, even at the smaller companies, but it becomes a real issue when, when you start to get to enterprise. That's probably a longer answer than you wanted. But step one, I just use that analogy of going from a strip mall to a big mall. It's just a, it's just a bigger zone with more folks that you got to include in the sales cycle. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I love this analogy of moving from a strip mall where you have four or five shops, maybe a couple choices to an entire like mega mall where you know, you're competing with way more things. These stores have way more people in them. There's more options. Uh, I think that's a great way to kind of frame it. Um, and so you mentioned politics and having to learn kind of the political structure of an organization and navigate that. When you were first doing this, how did you learn politics? Did you learn this through trial and error were you very proactive in bringing executives with you on this journey i know you talk a lot about this idea of the executive sale and i'd love for you to share that with with the audience yeah i mean so let's just jump right to the stories because that's where all the gold is that's that's how i how, how i learned everything myself. So that book that I wrote, um, it's, it's a novel. It was, it was a, it was written in a novel form to show beginning, middle and end of a very large deal. The first large deal that I did. And toward the end, toward the, the beginning of that story, there was this pivotal moment where I had come into an account that, um, it was, it was within several months of a renewal and they were not happy at all. And the scene was set that we were in uh, you know, a conference room on site at the customer. And to my right was my head of sales. To my left was my head of professional services. And across the table was this, you know, big team from the customer with the executive sponsor sitting right across from me. And we were just blabbering on about, okay, we can give you a discount here and a discount there. And we can take our offshore team and give you onshore resources. And I remember that the, uh, the executive sponsor just kind of held up his hands and he said, guys, 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 very informal. And he's like, guys, 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 this is not about discounts and which team members to use. 
This is about how we steward the most important IP of our company. And it was a long pause. And then the conversation completely shifted. And there were a lot of lessons in that episode. But for me, it struck me at how plainly senior executives speak. And I started to, with experiences like that, just being in a room with people at different levels of the organization to see how they operate differently, I could just see that the executive layer was just miles above the clouds, above everybody else. There was no jargon. There was no tech talk. It was all very simple. And there was some numbers involved, right? Numbers is always a big part of the language of executives. And so that, that was just one kind of vignette that really struck me. And then there were others where I could just see that when you get the right people in the room at the senior level, it's the same thing as getting six months worth of meetings of who I lovingly call worker bees and mid-level managers. Because they can just cut through all of the triviality of the complexity that the mid-level folks create. And they just get right to the heart of the matter and make progress very quickly and very simply. Yeah. I mean, so there's two things there. One, you know, I heard is getting to the point, right? What is the number one objective that your company has right now that we can potentially solve for? And in this example, they proactively gave that to you, which was like, that's a gift, right? You didn't have to spend all the time trying to like cut through that noise and do the small talk and, and try your best to ask the right questions. Um, I imagine that had a pretty profound impact on future large deals that you did. And I guess my question is, in future deals, how did you extract that line from those executives again, right? He told, he told you, listen, this is all about securing our most important IP. And that was it. And you're like, okay, that's what I focus on. That's what we're here to discuss. In future deals, how did you extract that information? Because it can be hard to get that one line, I find. It can be really difficult. I would, I would just ask for it specifically. And I would say, look, I'm a, I'm a simple guy with a simple mind. I can hardly remember what I had for lunch yesterday. If you wanted me to walk out of this room and I only understood one concept or one thing that you're trying to accomplish, what would that be? And then I imagine by the way they answer that question, you know if you're talking to the right authority or not, right? Because they might ask, uh, answer that question with all this mid-level complexity and those things that you're talking about. And then you're like, okay, well, next meeting, I'm going to have to bring in some more, some more power. Um, it's a powerful, powerful question. And then this, okay, then the second part of that is, is getting those people in the room. And that is very, very, very difficult to do. How over time did you learn or earn the right to get access to the right people on the other side of the deal? So at, at, at the conceptual level, I just call that selling above the clouds because of the impressions that mm -hmm. I had been left up to that point. It's like, holy cow, things can happen much faster, much more simply if I can, you know, or when I can get executives to talk to each other. Okay, so let me double down on that. Let, let me 80 to a Pareto's law that, you know, if I can get 20% of my time with the executives, I'll get 80% of my results from that 20% right there. How do I do more of that? 
I think every seller, whether they be an IC or a sales leader, um, can understand that when they begin conversations with an account at the lower end of the spectrum or the middle layer, those stakeholders are important. They have, you know, views that are important, but they don't have the scope or the mandate or the ambition um, to, to, to make big things happen. And so they're also enabled to say no to a lot of things, but they're not enabled to say yes to big things. And so what I learned was how can I just either choke up and not have to deal with those levels so much or involve them only enough to help me get as senior as I can as quickly as I can. So your your question was how to, basically how do I get high in the accounts and and replicate that? Well the first thing that I try to do is I try to find I I I say that I overinvest in warm introductions. And so I am consistently looking to establish relationships with people of capacity in my industry, whether whether there's a sale behind that relationship or not. The more I have a network of people who know me and then they know each other, the value of that network, you know, increases with every node. And so whenever I can find, you know, the good old LinkedIn first degree, second degree, third degree relationships, if I can do that with real people instead of just a piece of technology, what I've learned is that it, the power of a warm introduction lies in um, leveraging the years of building um, trust and going through crises together and shared experiences through the people who already know each other. And you're going to try to get an introduction through them to a third party. So that's probably a longer answer than you want, but it's really about how can I go through somebody who already knows me and trusts me to introduce me to somebody who knows and trusts them. Yeah, I mean, it feels like the year of 2023 is the year of warm introductions because it feels like it's the only thing that's working right now. And unfortunately, there's no way to just turn that on. You can't just automatically have a network, automatically have trust. These are things that if you didn't spend the last decade or two decades building those connections, uh, you can find yourself in a really tough spot. So it's being proactive that the the time and trust you build now, you might be able to reap in three, five, six years uh, time, um, which I think a lot of people are waking up to uh, right now. Maybe they didn't invest in community. Maybe they didn't invest enough in those and they find themselves in a in a tough spot. Um, I like that. I'm, I'm a huge fan of warm introductions. I think truly that's going to be the future of Outbound is, is people finally understanding their network, how to provide value to that network, and then ultimately extracting some of that value down the line through through introductions and turn that into to revenue. Um, one of the things on these big deals that I'm often curious about, because I've saw a few of them at Outreach and different companies that I've involved in, I know how much time and resources that these deals can suck up. And when you're a startup, or even a growth stage company, you only can make so many bets. And if you make the wrong bets, you can suck up a lot of time and find yourself in a, a scary situation pretty quick. How did you think about a identification of the right opportunities and then prioritize your time and be like, okay, this is the one? Because I imagine these $50 million deals 
you're working one for a year and a half, you probably have to just get rid of everything else on your calendar. Do you have some sort of framework for identification and discovery and prioritization? Uh, Yeah. Um, It's primarily around. So here's how I do it when I'm coaching reps. The the first thing that you want to do is look at your whatever account list, territory, patch, et cetera. And you want to let the biggest ones or the ones that have the greatest capacity to buy float to the top. So if you've got an account list of 20, you could pull out five and then you start to think, okay, well, what's the metric that I sell by? Is it seats or data items or servers or whatever? And then, you know, do the discovery or just, you know, use kind of order of magnitude thinking. Um, is this company, do they have enough capacity that if they bought everything that I had or bought all that they might be able to use, would that be a really big deal of size that it's, it's worthy of us bringing our A team and kind of over-resourcing it to get it done? So that that's step one. And then there's other things which are, do we already have relationships? Whether they're customers or not, do we have relationships that are going to help us get eyes and ears on the other side of the line? And then do we, do we have a commercial relationship? Is there an MSA in place? Is that MSA usable for a usable for a usable that speaks to uh, speed, right? How quickly can, can we, could we get something going? Because if you don't have an MSA and they're fairly large, it's going to take a while. So not having an MSA is basically adding two months to a sales cycle. Having one may not be. These are the, you know, and I keep it really simple. There's not much more than that. You only need a few filters, a few cuts to be able to get to a very manageable list of like two or three accounts. And then you start to do the early work. And when you when you get a breakthrough, either with a really great value story or a really great path to somebody who's got a lot of influence or control over managing and, you know, uh, managing a big pain and the budget toward doing that. I, I think that's a great way of looking at it. It is simple. I feel like we overly complicate everything and the more simple you can keep it, the better. Uh, okay. So let's say you've got this identified, like there's something here. And then you said time to bring in the A team and the A team is typically consisting of really powerful, influential executives from your side. These people are very time constrained. Their calendars are super full. How did you earn the clout and the respect of these executives that they are willing to spend their time on Jamal's deal? I think that's something a lot of reps struggle with. Even that, even asking, it's, it's wild. In my opinion, you'd be shocked how many execs want to help you, but people are scared to ask um and how did you go about doing that the first time when you're like wow these people are all essentially working for me these are powerful people that i get to mobilize the the first time i did it i was exactly in the position that you just described scott i was scared to ask i didn't know that they really wanted to help i was um i was a new seller i had just come from being a founder of a failed startup in seattle back in Whenever the top of the bubble was two thousand, you know, ninety nine, two thousand one, in was was the period, and um, so I didn't have any relationships. I was a, I was a brand new hire, and they hired me. They were a company that sold legal uh, software or, or so, to, sold to the legal market. They wanted to sell this software 
to financial services. So um, they wanted to use, yeah, because I had something of the Rolodex between VCs and, and investment banks. And so I said, okay, I've got to get a reputation as at least somebody that they want to work with. So let me, what can I do? What can I do? So um, I knew that the financial services, these sub-markets were, were of great interest to our leadership team. So I said, okay, I'm going to hold a conference call because there was no Zoom back then. It was just, it was just phone, right? I'm going to hold a conference call for our own C-suite and you know any manager, and I'm just going to do an update on the VC market and the iBank market. And I, it's not about deals that I'm bringing. This is just about what's going on in the market. What do they care about? What are top issues for them? What are the biggest deals that are going down, et cetera? And I did that. And the CEO showed up. And at, sooner or later, the CFO showed up. And I'd, I'd get like 70%, 60, 70% of the C-suite at any one given meeting, depending on what they had to do. And this is just stuff over and above. It was it was part of my discovery because I needed to learn this stuff too, I, you know, because you got to keep up. And so by the fourth meeting, um, you know, the CFO is like, "Look, if you need special pricing and stuff to get some of this stuff done, just you know, call me. We'll, we'll get some stuff done." CEO is like, "Hey, if you need me on a call, this sounds great. Love to also hear about the deals you're doing." So what I tried to do is find a way to be of service and add value to stakeholders who I wanted to develop a sense of uh, reciprocity. And I do the same thing mm -hmm. with customer executives too. It, when we start from a place of giving, um, we should do it just from the pure motives of doing that. But a nice little ride on is this sense of reciprocity and a desire to do business with you because you know, you're a good guy who's delivering value and you got some smart ideas. I mean, that's a very repeatable motion. And now easier than ever with our, we're all in Zooms all day anyway. You you mentioned you're likely doing deep discovery on whatever category you're selling into, whatever title you're selling into, whatever persona you're selling into. Mm -hmm. These executives don't have time to do that often, right? They're putting out a million and one fires. So why wouldn't you take that and create a public forum, you know, and say, hey, we're I think there's an opportunity within insurance. Here's why I think there's an opportunity. Map it out. Here's the problem statement here. And people are going to eat that up. So I think that is very actionable and something any seller could do today. And I bet you would be shocked, just like you found. I bet 60, 70% 60, of your execs will, will attend. Uh, and then you have those direct lines of communication. You can say, hey, remember that insurance presentation I did? Well, Actually, I've got three on the hook right now. Can I bring you into a call and like get your opinion on it? I, that is that is gold. Any seller listening, do that uh, ASAP. And so you get these people on on board. Was there ever a time when you felt like you were using them too much? Uh, like I guess what was was the trade off? Were they just happy if if they saw Jamal putting in the work? that they would come again and again? Or how did you keep them invested in the relationship? Or once momentum starts, do you find they lean more and more in? <laughs> uh, the, there's, there's so many stories. When you said, do I get them to work too hard? The second really large deal that I did <clears throat> kind of culminated. It, it's always very you know down to the wire before the last day, not of the quarter, but of the whole year. And we, when I was at Oracle, we used to have a saying, which was, you know, I'm at a, I'm at a big fat goose egg 
364 days of the year. <clears throat> and then this big deal comes in that, that, that blows it away. But I remember uh, it was the second really big deal that I did. And my mentor, my head of sales at the time, we had just finished a four hour uh, review of final um, documents for the last, last, last opportunity to make any changes with the procurement team and the business with our customer. So it was four hours. It wound up at 3.30 in the morning. And when we, when we closed the call, uh, my VP called me right back, you know, and all of our families are asleep and, you know, it's just, you know, red eyes and all this kind of stuff. And, uh, and he's, he's a Frenchman, a, a French born Serbian. And he, and he said, Oh, Jamal, you make me work too hard. <laughs> <laughs> So there, there is certainly some point where that has happened, but if you, if you front load it the right way, that's not going to happen very much. And yeah, they, they will be happy to do it. And one of the biggest ones, so this is, this is beneficial to a seller. I, it's, in some ways I'm a, I'm a one trick pony and I have one answer for every, you know, I have a hammer and for me, everything is a nail. And the answer is always get higher sooner. That's like always, it's, it just cures so many ills internally, externally with a customer, with a partner, with your own company, everything. So when I'm gearing up to, to, you know, kind of round up the troops and I, and I see that there's some, there's a there there that, that could be a deal. I go to the most senior person I can, I'll go to my own CEO and I'll lay out my case and then I'll say, this isn't even totally qualified yet. I, I smell smoke. Will you come and help make a fire? And so when they understand that, okay, this is not wrapped up with a bow and I'm just going to walk in for a handshake and a signature, that there's lots of work to do and I get their buy-in to be a part of that process, then I say, okay, we're going to need a lot of folks. It's not just you and me. We're going to need a lot of folks. And they're, as you already said, Scott, they're busy. They're, they're our A team and they're busy on 16 other deals. I need you to go to their bosses and free them up because this is, if you believe like I believe, then this is a big priority deal. We need to kind of, you know, clear the, clear the runway for this flight to take off. So I go get a lot of big internal buy-in and then they bring it to whoever needs to hear that give Jamal what he needs because we're in this really big deal. Yeah, it sounds like part of what you've done extremely well is, you know, A, you're a straight shooter. You can tell, you just tell it like it is. And then the ability to manage expectations on both sides of the fence and not oversell. Don't oversell the deal on the, the buyer side and then don't oversell the the potential, you know, you're like, this could be game changing, but in order to get there, there's a lot of work that has to be done. And, you know, I feel like if you oversell it and then there's not momentum right away, people are going to lose interest. They probably won't come to your aid again. You know, the boy who cried wolf a little bit, if you always saying, I think there's something here and it, it doesn't happen. So there's a whole bunch of things you did right. Sometimes it's more interesting to hear about what you did wrong. And so if I could transport you back to either one of the those first big deals that you did, what would you do differently? The, the things that I would have done differently, probably the biggest thing that I would do differently is a, a lesson that I now teach because it's bitten me in the backside so many times. Never stop 
multi-threading. Never stop multi-threading. Even when this thing is wrapped up and you're just about to get to signatures, especially in large enterprises, there's always somebody else who's a part of it who you haven't met and you don't know where they stand on the issue. You have no visibility and no control and, and, and things are just going to happen and you're not even going to know it. Yeah. I mean, it's, I've seen that again and again and again. Um, where do you think that stemmed from? I, it's like, cause there is this school of thinking too, but I think it's a, it's a very SMB mid market way of thinking is don't add complexity, right? There's this fear of we're going to bring in more people. They're going to have new things and like, Oh, it's going to slow down this deal. Um, and I don't think it's, it's, it's right. I feel like at least at the enterprise, I imagine you saw this again, and again, it's like, well, that problem's going to bubble up to the top anyway. Let's get a, get ahead of it, you know? Yeah. Um, I guess the way that I would address the reality versus the fear of somebody who's, who, who's in the fear of making something overly complex is that it's not like you just want to go out and meet everybody, for, you know, whoever they are for any reason. There's a path, right? And a, a, a deal both leaves a path and it, it has a direct, it's almost like, uh, like in real estate, you know, the path of development It's deals have a path of development too, in a logical direction. Not all of it is going to be obvious to you. So you have to kind of w- work around the periphery as well. I mean, I'll, I'll give you an example. Mm-hmm. Um, let's say that a seller, no, you're reaching toward the end and the T's and C's are being negotiated. Um, but you don't, so you know the closing steps. You've asked the customer for the closing steps in their buying process, and you're feeling really good that you're covering everybody in the buying process, but you don't pull back the, the uh, onion so far to say, walk me through the signature process. I mean, like every signature. And that's a level of detail that most reps will not go to. And if you can get there, you're probably going to say, okay, now who does that signature? Oh, that's that one's Sally. Well, why does she need to do? Well, it's kind of a dotted line to the CFO, between the CFO and the CIO. You never heard of Sally before. And so all of a sudden there's a player that may have a reason not to sign or to delay it or she's out or whatever. So, you know, my version of all never stop multi-threading is focused. It's not add complexity for, for complexity's sake. It's always stay ahead of the path of the deal. Yeah. Yeah. And you're, yeah, you're just peeling that onion of like, you're not just going rogue and going wild because then you can also piss people off because maybe you go to the wrong person, competing priorities. You don't want to do that. So I think that's a good way. It's like a, a tree and you just follow the branches that naturally sort of come up. Um, that makes total sense. Okay. I want to go now to, uh, one of my favorite parts of this, where we get a listener question and, um, I try and tease out one that's relevant to the conversation we're having. And this one very much is, we've talked about some of this, but I would love just your, your take. The question is we are building out an enterprise sales team and the current team does not seem to have the right skill set. What are the key components of an enterprise playbook? So when we do hire our first enterprise rep, they are at least set up for success. 
feel like this is a very common question for, for startup founders and sales leaders right now. Well, hearing the whole question, uh, one thing is clear that they're on target, that they're looking to hire their first AE. And I would just kind of even preface what I would say by saying that that's the right move. Some, some younger companies simply try to transform existing reps from you know SMB mid-market commercial and turn them into enterprise reps. While that's possible, and I can totally see like from, from a loyalty standpoint, you want to stay with the rep who's been with you for the whole journey and let them keep ascending. From a timing and, and a, and a go-to-market perspective, that's really hard to do in a reasonable time frame in the tech space and in, in, in the SaaS world. You really need folks who are kind of already jaded and salty and have you know been through enough rodeos that they have a few broken bones. Mm-hmm. So for me, that's step one. And they're already addressing in that question, which is, okay, we're going to hire. So what do we need? Um, so one thing that I think is super important is the willingness of at least some of the C-suite to co-sell. Um, I have been horrified just in the past 18 months with the number of stories and lamentations coming to me from really ambitious sellers saying, my, my management doesn't want to sell with me. They want me to just go make a kill and bring it back to the village. And I just, it, it feels like it's like 30%, right? Wow. It's a, a, a non-quantitative study, but it feels like 30% of the sellers who, who want to be very ambitious and do these complex selling playbooks um, don't have firm backing high enough up the chain to be able to work with them. And the truth of the matter is that the C-suite should be selling. I mean, if it's nothing that else that I learned at Oracle was, um, you know, the level of sales that happened at the, at the very highest levels. And um, uh, that's a playbook. And, and Oracle it, it almost learned it from SAP. SAP were like the original executive sellers and they used to, have one over on Oracle in the early days, back in the early two, 2000s. We were hearing stories all the time of us getting beat by SAP. And then that switched once we learned the playbook as well. So mm-hmm. number one, number one, hire, don't develop, not in the early days. Number two, have the C-suite ready and willing to co-sell along with the sellers. Mm-hmm. And number three, have an understanding that, you know, as you're developing a a methodology or a framework, whatever you want to call it, understand that any flavor of an enterprise playbook is not going to be linear, right? There are, there are linear methodologies out there and I'll oversimplify it that basically say, okay, if you do step one, step two, and then step three in that order, 40% of the time, a small deal will pop out. You know, that's a transactional selling model that you can kind of plug and play and do that. With the enterprise, it's going to be going all over the place. And it's a circuitous route with forks in the road and washed out bridges and, you know, just just a whole crazy escapade. And But ha- that, that has implications on um, how to manage up, how to forecast, uh, how to staff. Right. So I would, I would say if I, if I'm trying to wrap up that point, it would just be have, have a lot of patience and openness to the nonlinear nature of enterprise sales cycles. I 
thought that was a really interesting way to put it of if you force it into a linear process, a small deal is going to pop up. Again, I've seen that time and time again. We're working with a huge logo. There's smoke, as you said. It's building a fire. But then the rep gets trained to do a linear process, and then you get a 20-seat deal at an SAP or a, you know, and because you force them into it. Whereas if you had taken your time, uh, you could maybe actually transform that into a 200,000 person, you know, deal, uh, which feels very common to me is, is SaaS companies get into what is an enterprise deal cycle, and then they mistake it by putting it through a linear process. How do you coach that patience when, you know, you've got your leader breathing down your neck He's like, oh, let's just get that logo in the door. Let's just get get it in. We'll land and expand. That's that's very common. Um, how do you teach that patience? That's a hard one because when you have a leader that wants that logo and will discount the heck to get it and get it within the quarter, that is uh, for me. That's that's toxic, right? That that's very hard to change. Typically, the way that I see it, uh, most often it's the first line manager who's really concerned about discounting it down and, and, you know, either because they're trying to make their own numbers or because they think that that's what management wants. They have that very short-term transactional mentality. And the super senior folks, at least in my experience, have been more open to bigger vision selling. So to kind of, you can sell the same piece of software to a worker bee, you can sell it to a mid-level manager, you can sell it to an executive. Same product, you can have three completely different value stories and they're going to sound completely different. To the worker bee, you're basically selling an easy button, right? Because they're on the floor, they're moving pallets or they're, they're, you know, creating reports or whatever it is. They just want an easy button. If you give them an easy button, they are going to buy. And right there's a 10K deal for you. But if you go to a mid-level, you know, director or VP, they don't want an easy button. They want something that's going to take care of the whole team. So some kind of, uh, you know, point solution. And maybe you'll get a 100K deal out of that. But you can't sell a point solution to an executive. They need something that's going to have impact across an entire line of business or the entire enterprise. And now we're talking something that looks more like a, a business unit transformation, a digital transformation. You use a different language a different vision, a different value proposition that sounds nothing like the, the the easy button or the point solution. I love that. Just saying that again is, you know, 10K deal, easy button, sell that all day long. You know, then you have these point solutions or something that will take care of the team. You tell that powerful story, you get 100K. And then to get those behemoth, you know, multi-million dollar deals, this is a true business transformation. And that's what you're selling. Uh, and it can be the same software. It is just a different, you know, value statement. I love that. That is pure, pure gold. Okay. I know I'm, I'm, I'm taking us, uh, long on this one, but I have two final questions for you. And I always keep these intentionally vague uh, so you can take it whichever way you want. Uh, first one is what's one thing that founders or revenue leaders believe widely that you think is bullshit? or no longer serving us? Um, I, I have to rack this one up. It, it's, it, it's, it's come to me relatively recently from a discussion that I had with somebody I work with. His name is Akio Aida. And he has really uh, shed some light 
which is that um, so many founders will as quickly as possible or when they feel is right, will spin up a sales team and then say, go sell. And that sales team either is not enabled or they, they face headwinds in a way that they can't either find product market fit or the very next thing after product, you know, they can't scale. And so that founder or early team or early management team will just kind of jettison the whole um, sales organization or the sellers or the CRO or whatever. When in fact, quite often, it isn't the sellers. It was the product and the message. So certainly there are times where there are underperforming individuals or teams, but more often than we might suspect, the alignment between product readiness and the message to the market don't match up in a way that lets sellers do their job. I think that's one big fallacy that a lot of that a lot of founders have, especially technical founders. This man, this piece of kit is awesome. It should sell itself. And if these sellers can't do it, then let's just get rid of them and start over. Unfortunately, too common. And you know that requires a very hard look in the mirror from founders to look at the product that has, is probably your baby. And look at the messaging that you probably came up with and be like, ooh, maybe there is the problem. Uh, I think that's that's good. Um, all right, final question. This is similar vein, but more in a, a positive light. What's one thing that leaders or founders can implement today after listening to this podcast that you think will help move the needle for them? It's something we already discussed. It's being willing to co-sell with your sellers immediately. Even if it's small cameo appearances, just being willing to be that, that instantly establishing peer status, what I call peer business status with somebody who's in the room, it enables the seller to say, I can bring my CEO. I can bring one of our founders. If you can bring somebody who can deploy resources, who owns the problem, whose, whose mandate is to fix it in one way or another. You can accelerate getting to power so quickly when the C-suite, the founders, the, the, the top executives within any startup will get in the boat and row with the seller. You can do that right now. That, that you can. Any leaders listening to this, any founders, hopefully this is inspiration to get in the arena. What can you do today? Is there a customer call you can join today? Is there a discovery call you can join today? You know, ping your enterprise reps, see, ask them, how can I help? Um, man, Jamal, always enjoy our chats. Thank you so much for coming on, sharing your wisdom. Uh, I would highly encourage anyone listening to this. If some of this resonated, you know, go to enterprisesellers.com. Incredible, incredible community. Uh, and Jamal, where else can people follow along with what you're doing? Uh, you can always hit me up on LinkedIn. I spend way too much time there. And then, you know, if you want to read the book and the story, it's megadealsecrets.com. You can get it at Amazon or I can drop a link. Beautiful. We'll make sure that goes in the link. And thank you all, the listeners, for hanging out with us, lending us your eardrums for the last 40 minutes. Uh, I hope you learned a ton. And I always say listening is one thing. Executing is everything. Uh, apply some of these lessons and go scale your companies. And we'll see you next week.